Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you here this morning. Glad you've chosen to worship with us. You know, there's, uh, there, was used, there used to be a show on television, and uh, it's still on some free TV streaming services like uh, Pluto and Plex, but the show is called Unsolved Mysteries. How many of you remember watching Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah, quite a few of you. Yeah, back in the 90s. Uh, you may recall how the actor Robert Stack would always come out at the beginning of the show in his typical stoic way, begin to unfold a true story of a kidnapping or someone who left to go to a grocery store and disappeared, or a scam artist who stole the life savings of some elderly widow, something like that. Anyway, the perpetrator was never caught and the mystery was never solved. It was an unsolved mystery. And if you're a Christ follower, you know that there are many areas of the Christian life that are kind of unsolved mysteries, like the whole uh, doctrine of the Trinity, where God is one and, and three and three and one, and how does all that work, and, or the doctrine of election, how we have to choose God, but he chooses us. And then uh, the person of Christ, uh, Jesus is fully God and he's fully human, and there are several unsolved mysteries in the Bible like that that actually can have the positive effect of humbling us and producing awe and worship in us. And I've always believed if I could figure out everything about God, then he wouldn't really be God. So frankly, I'm very comfortable with a God I cannot completely understand or explain. But there's one area of the Christian life that we typically think of as a mystery that I don't really believe that God wants to remain a mystery. For example, have you ever been going through a trial of some kind, something unexpected, something that kind of shakes you to the core, something that actually tempts you to doubt the goodness of God or even maybe the existence of God, and in the midst of that adversity, you say to a friend, I just don't know what God is trying to teach me. I just don't know what God is trying to teach me. I mean, you've been doing the best you can to live faithful to God, but something happens and you don't understand it. You don't think you deserve it. And the question is, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? What are you trying to teach me? How many of you ever wondered about that? Okay, about as many as watch Unsolved Mysteries. But anyway, um, actually, I think it's pretty much, much all of us, but this morning, I want to share with you the answer to that question, and it's not that I've been blessed with some kind of special insight here, but this is one of those unsolved mysteries that God actually explains. It's not something he wants us to wonder about or worry about. In fact, it's something that he absolutely wants us to know. The question is, why does God let bad things happen to the people he loves and we find the answer in the book of James, James chapter one. So find your way in your copy of uh, scripture, whether it's uh, paper or digital. Find your way to James chapter one. We'll get there in just a minute. Now, last week we began talking about the book of James and we said that there were two central ideas that James develops in his book, two ideas that tie together to form what I would call the big idea of the book. And the first idea is that the life of faith is a life of difficulty. The life of faith is a life of difficulty, and we're going to talk more about that this morning. And the second idea is that only a faith that expresses itself in visible, tangible actions will get you through the difficulties. In fact, James states this in a very 
uh, abrupt and in-your-face kind of way in chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's worthless. James tells us that in this life, this side of eternity, it's not enough to believe the right things or to listen to challenging sermons or to go to church or be baptized at the right time in the right way. He says, for faith to make any difference in your life and the lives of other people, your faith has to be applied in real life situations. And if faith is not applied for all practical purposes on this side of eternity, faith that is not applied is useless. And that's what this book is about. Now think about it. Unapplied faith, faith that's not put into action, won't do anything for your marriage, it won't do anything for your kids, won't do anything for you financially, won't do anything for your reputation, it won't save you from guilt or shame or bitterness or resentment. It won't save you from making bad decisions. It won't save you from the negative consequences of sin. It won't keep you from throwing in the towel and walking away from God when something tragic and unexpected happens to you. If your faith doesn't work itself out in tangible, visible, concrete actions, your faith will not save you from or carry you through the inevitable difficulties and hardships of life. So basically, James has written a whole book, a whole book in the Bible that tells us how to do our faith, how to live our faith, how to put your faith into action in the midst of hard times. That's what he's concerned with. Not so much uh, concerned with what are we to believe, but rather, what are we supposed to do with what we believe? Not so much, how can I be sure I'm going to heaven when I die, but how can I live a life of faith now so I can experience the life, the abundant life that Jesus died to make possible? Now, in chapter one, he begins with a very tough subject, and it's like he's thinking under the direction of the Holy Spirit. I'd better get this out of the way right at the, at the start, because if they don't understand this, they won't understand anything else I'm about to write. And in this opening section in chapter one, James solves the unsolved mystery of why God lets tough times come into our life and how we are to respond to those tough times in faith. Look at verse one. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And last week, we said that most likely this James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader, the pastor of the new church in Jerusalem after uh, the resurrection, the instant of Christ, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who've been scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, uh, Jewish Christians who've had their homes and lands and possessions confiscated. There's intense persecution going on. And these are believers that are living under constant threat of losing their lives, and most of them are now poor, if they weren't to, uh, to start with. And, and, and look what James tells them, verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now stop. If we did not know who was writing this, we would just close the book and say, this guy's a lunatic. I mean, what's he thinking? Consider it joy when you go through bad times? That's just crazy. Trials and joy 
do not go together. Trials and joy are incompatible. And this letter may be 2,000 years old, but James and his readers struggled with the same thoughts that we have whenever we go through rough times. God, what, what, what's going on? God, I, th- I, I thought you were a good God, and I, I prayed about this every day, but it just seems like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. It doesn't even feel like you're hearing what I'm saying. Are you even there? And these hurting people, they're just like us, they just don't understand why God is allowing these trials to come into their life. And part of their problem was something that they had picked up in, their, uh, in the teaching of the, their Jewish religious background. Uh, their Jewish religious background had taught them if good things happen to you, then God's happy with you. If bad things happen to you, then God is mad at you. So here's this group of relatively new Christians, and they're being persecuted for their faith, and they still have some of that old teaching planted in their brains, and they're drawing the conclusion that all this trouble means there must be something wrong with me or there's something wrong with God. And James is saying, no, when you encounter any kind of trial, every kind of trial, you need to look at those trials different. You need to look at them from a whole different perspective. You need to consider your trials as an opportunity for experiencing joy And that made about as much sense to them as it does to us. In fact, you might be sitting here this morning and you've heard these verses and you've read these verses maybe hundreds of times and you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know my story. And I know it says many kinds of trials, but I've got to be the exception because I bet if James heard my story, he would say, oh man, you're going through that? That is the exception. I mean, you better come over here with me and sit in the exception section. I mean, that your story really is outside the parameters of what I'm talking about. But James is saying, no, when you find yourself in the middle of a mess, in the middle of a really hard time, then you're to think about that situation differently. You are to consider. That's a mental thing. Consider it joy. Think of it as joy. Not feel happy about it. Uh, not feel joyful, but consider it. Think of it, let me put it this way, as as a way that you might experience joy on a deeper level than you have ever experienced it before. Point being, if you think of your trial in a certain way, even in the life-crushing turmoil that trial has brought into your life, James says there can still be an undercurrent of joy that can carry you through. Joy comes from thinking about your trials in a certain way. Thinking about your trials, thinking through those trials to their logical conclusion because behind every problem, there's a purpose. Behind every problem, God has a purpose. And joy is possible when you know and you understand when you have the perspective that God has a good purpose that he's working in us even if it doesn't feel like there's a good purpose in it. So what is it that God wants to do? Verse three, here's what he wants to do. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. That word actually means to hyperstand. I like, the, I like the, uh, the word that I just created, standfastness. 
standfastness. That's what it actually means if you take it from the Greek. And let standfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So why does God allow bad things to come into the lives of the people he loves? That's the question. Number one, why God uses trials to develop steadfast faith in us. That God uses trials to develop steadfast faith in us. He's working, he's using trials to develop a living, active, persevering, enduring faith in us. And he wants you to know that's what he is doing. He wants you to consider it, to think about it, reflect on it, hold on to it. What God is doing, listen, is not a mystery. It's not a mystery. He tells us right here. And specifically, God wants you to know that trials are tests of faith. Look at it, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith. Now, do you know how God defines the trials in your life? God defines the trials as tests of your faith. You say, you say God, my world is falling apart. God says, no, I'm testing your faith. You say, God, look at, look at what's happening to me. God says, I know, I'm testing your faith. You say, God, I don't like this. God says, I know, I'm testing your faith. From God's perspective, every trial you face is a test of faith. And as a follower of Jesus, you need to know that. You need to consider that. Whatever comes into your life, a money thing, a marriage thing, a kid thing, a job thing, a health thing, Whatever comes into your life, God is using that trial to test your faith. Now, back in verse 2, he says, consider it all joy when, when you encounter various trials. And that word various is the Greek word poikoloi. Poikoloi. It means multicolored. It means polka dotted. It, trials come in many colors. Headaches, heartaches, unmet needs, unfulfilled romances, unachieved goals, untimely death of someone we love. It feels like unbearable pressure, failing grades, failing health, fault-finding family members, friends that turn against you, a habit you can't seem to break, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, uh, minor irritations, major exasperations, financial problems, physical problems, emotional problems, anything that makes you say, God, save me from this. God, make this go away. James says, know this. Those things come to you from God as a test of your faith. Now, sometimes the test reveals if a person has genuine faith in Christ or not. And sadly, lots of people walk away from God because something tragic, something bad happened to them and God didn't do for them what they wanted him to do. But that isn't the kind of testing that James has in mind. James assumes his readers have faith. Look at it, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith. They had faith. So he's not questioning whether they're Christians or not. The test has to do with the quality of your faith, the purity of your faith. He's testing how strong, how steadfast your faith is. That's what the word test means. It refers to how a metal like gold is purified in a fiery furnace. Gold is refined by heating it up, and when the, when the gold becomes molten, molten liquid, the dross or the impurities bubbles to the top, 
and they're removed, and the pure gold is poured out, and then what's left is put back in the fire and refined again. More impurities coming out of it until you end up with the purest of pure gold. That's what James, James means by test, the refining of your faith. So God is working in us to refine our faith. He is removing the impurities of doubt and self-sufficiency in order to strengthen our faith. Because tell me if this isn't true. I mean, when something bad happens to you, what's the first thing you do? Well, like what I do, we cry out to God. Oh God, you knew this was coming, didn't you? Oh, oh God, uh, you knew I'd get this phone call, didn't you? Oh God, you, you knew that what the test results would be, didn't you? God, you knew that I'd be served these papers. And as Christians, we believe that God is in control. We believe that he's all-powerful and, and he knows everything and he's all-wise. And we know that he's loving and good. And there's something in us that wants to, wants to say, God, if you knew this was coming, why didn't you just stop it before it got here? God, you knew this was coming. You're gonna fix this, right? God, you're only gonna let me go so low, right? This is only gonna go so far, right? Uh, God, they're, they're going to they're, they're find a cure, right? I'm going to be healed, right? And suddenly in the midst of our trials, what happens? Our faith, that is our belief that God is who he said he is and that he'll do what he said he'd do. Suddenly, your faith in God is shaken and, and your faith feels weak. It feels exhausted. It feels insufficient. And we think we need more proof of what we believe about God. And here's what James is telling us. He's saying, I know you don't understand why God is letting all these bad things happen to you. It's a mystery to you, but let me solve the mystery. The first thing you need to understand is that your faith is so important to God that God brings things into your life and allows things to come into your life that are hard and hurtful in order to use those things to build your faith, to build your faith muscle, if you would permit because faith is like a muscle. Now, most of you know how muscles work. Uh, if you wanna build a muscle, what do you do? Well, you, you, you work that muscle to the point of exhaustion, and then you let it rest. And then you work it to the point of exhaustion again, and then you let it rest. And you exhaust it uh, to the point of uh, exhaustion again, and then you let that muscle rest. You don't build muscles simply by resting them. You have to do reps, like three sets of eight to 15 reps to exhaust a muscle in order to build strength. It's not a one and done kind of thing. And that's the way it is with trials. And James is saying faith is like that. And God, because he loves you and wants the best for you, best in the sense of you becoming more like Jesus, and that's what it means, what James means when he says that you might become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It means we become more spiritually mature. It means that we become more and more like Jesus as our faith perseveres and preserves us through suffering. And God loves you so much that he will allow and sometimes cause things to come into your life that are hard and hurtful to bring you to the point of exhaustion to strengthen your faith so that when all is said and done, we have a living, active, steadfast faith. When all is said and done, we'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, 
living out the kind of life that Jesus would live if he were going through those difficulties. You see that. God is working to refine our faith, to build our faith into, listen, building in us a faith that expresses itself in Christ-like actions in the midst of the difficulties. And our Heavenly Father is absolutely committed to this agenda for your life and mine. It is more important to Him than our comfort or convenience or anything else. Why? Because from the perspective of eternity, there's nothing more important. Now, I hear you. I'm with you. When a trial comes into our lives that threatens to undo you, it's hard to accept the fact that building your faith is more important to God than making the trial go away. I get that. In fact, if God came to, if God came to one of us, we're going through a trial, and God said, would you like me to use this trial to build your faith, or do you just want me to take it away? <laughs> I think all of us would say, take it away, let's leave faith building for another day. But the truth is, in this little wrinkle-free life that you and I want so much to maintain, a life where everybody's healthy and comfortable and, and yeah, reasonable amount of wealth and everything, there's nothing in a life of comfort and convenience and ease that will build our faith. Not going to one Bible study after another, not listening to sermons at church or on YouTube, not taking equipping classes. Now listen, all those things are important and they're important things because in sermons and Bible classes and Bible reading, Bible studies and all that kind of thing, we get the knowledge we need to rely on when the trials come. But not any of those things actually build your faith. Think about it. On days when everything is going great, do you ever get up in the morning and say, oh God, help me to walk in faith today. I just don't know if I can. Oh, right, on days when everything is just like it's supposed to be, there's no sense of, God, I'm really depending on you today. God, I don't know if I can make it through today, right? But when the bottom falls out, then suddenly there's tension. Then suddenly the faith muscles are being stretched. Suddenly they're being stretched to the point of exhaustion because what we say we believe about God, that God is wise and powerful and loving and good, suddenly that belief is being stretched, and we have to answer the question, do I really believe those things? Do I really believe that God is wise and loving and powerful and good, even when there is no visible, tangible evidence of it? And when we hold on to what we believe when there's no visible, tangible evidence that it's true, then that faith, that faith can become a confident Stand firm kind of faith. So, summary so far, James is saying when bad times come, know this. God is at work. He's testing your faith. When bad times come, know that, that, that trials are orchestrated by God to refine your faith, to burn out doubt and self-sufficiency so that your confidence is in God and God alone so that you can honestly say, not my will, but thy will be done, so that you become more like Jesus. So the question is, why does God allow trials to come into our life? And the first part of the answer, James tells us right here, God is working to develop steadfast faith in you, a living, active, stand firm kind of faith. That's the first thing, and it's not a mystery. It's something James says we know 
or we ought to know. We need to know. However, since we don't always have that perspective when trials come into our life, James tells us what we can do if we're struggling with all this. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask a God who gives generously to all without reproach, meaning uh, without finding fault, meaning that when you ask God for wisdom uh, to understand uh, how, how to put your faith into action in a trial, when you ask him for wisdom, he's not going to ding you for that. He's, he's not going to say... <coughs> He's not going to say, well, I just told you why. I'm trying to refine your faith. He's not going to find fault in you asking him to help you understand what's going on. So uh, it says, if you ask, it'll be given to you. But then, verse 6, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, James is saying if, in the middle of a trial, it's still kind of a mystery to you, you need to pray and ask God for wisdom. Now, you know what I ask for? Like, I ask for a way out. I ask for relief. I ask for God to make it all to go away. God, fix this. God, solve this. God, put my life back together the way it was. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to pray that way. But James is saying, in the middle of a trial, you need to be praying also, God, help me to see this like you see it. Help me to see what's happening from your perspective so I can respond in faith. God, I need wisdom. I need to see this mess, this hardship the way you see it. And the promise is, if you will pray this prayer, God will answer it. So number two, Point number two is, if we ask him, God will give us the wisdom we need to make it through the trial stronger in our faith. If we ask, God will give us the wisdom we need to make it through the trial stronger in our faith. Now listen, asking God for wisdom is not so much about asking why. It's not so much asking, God, what are you trying to teach me? Why am I going through this? Even though we do ask that sometimes. But why not ask why? Well, because James, James has just told us why, right? We know why. Remember verse 3, for you know, what is God doing? He's testing your faith. He's refining your faith. He's working to develop a living, active, stand firm faith. He's bubbling out doubt and self-sufficiency and building up your faith muscle. So the wisdom that James is referring to is not so much about why, it's more about how. How do I live by faith in this trial? How do I put my faith into action? How do I live faithfully in the middle of this mess? Now, in the book of Proverbs, and remember last week I said James is to the New Testament what Proverbs is to the Old Testament. It's wisdom literature. literature. Wisdom in the Hebrew means skill in living. It has to do understand, with understanding how things really are and acting in line with that, acting accordingly. That's what we need most in a trial. We need to see how things really are from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective, and then think and act accordingly. Now, this past week I learned about six marriages that are in serious upheaval. 
So the question is, what does wisdom look like when, when or if you find your marriage falling apart? The question is, how does God see the problems in your marriage, and what difference would it make if you saw the problems in your marriage from God's perspective? How does God see what's going on? And by the way, if you're not married, this applies, what I'm about to say applies to any kind of relationship conflict. But how does God see what's going on? Well, when God looks at what's going on, um, I, I can tell you this, he doesn't get all caught up in uh, he said, she said, or I did, they did, or she did, he did. Hear me Now, don't get me wrong, the specific issues that got you to the place you are are important, and those issues do matter to God, but think about this. If you came to wonderful counselor Jesus, and you both were trying to tell Jesus why your marriage is in trouble, what do you think he would say? Now, I am pretty sure that he wouldn't spend hours and hours trying to get to the bottom of all the specific details of your disagreements and your differences. I think, knowing Jesus like I do, he would try to get you to see what's going on from a much bigger perspective, from God's perspective, and I think he would ask you questions that would make you think that he had not heard anything that you had said. <laughs> he, he, he does things like that. He might ask you, he might say something to you, you know, in all of that I've heard you talking about, I haven't heard you reference God at all. He, he might say, well, what difference does your faith make in this marital mess you've created? He might say, well, if you became convinced that God wants to use what you're going through to burn out selfishness and bitterness and hatefulness in order to make your faith stronger, in order to make you more loving like Jesus, what difference would that make? How would you put that perspective, that faith into action? Have you, have you even asked God for the wisdom to make, uh, uh, as to how to make your marriage work and then ask him for the resolve and the determination and the steadfastness to do what his wisdom directs you to do. I mean, if you did ask him, wouldn't that cause you to repent and ask for forgiveness and to grant forgiveness and to commit to get the help you need to get unstuck? Which, by the way, could mean that you commit to going through something like re-engage or even Regen, which is a discipleship ministry that helps people get unstuck, which by the way, is not too late to sign up for that online or at the next step table out in the commons. Uh, Regen starts back on Monday, October the 3rd. That would be something you could commit to to get your marriage back on track, get yourself back on track. Anyway, I'm quite sure that Jesus would not hear, you, hear your story and say, whoa, whoa, whoa boy, you're right, you can sit in the exception sec section. In some ways, what Jesus would tell you might, might be much simpler than what you might think. He might say, what you need more than anything else is to look at what you're going through from God's perspective. God is at work in this, folks, to refine your faith and to burn out sin and self-centeredness and, and unloving attitudes to make you more like him. He's testing you to see if you will put your faith into action when you're tired and discouraged and disillusioned and hurt and hopeless and angry and bitter or unwilling to look at what's going on from any other perspective than your own. And 
if you can't see your way forward, if you can't see what you're going through from God's perspective, if you don't know how to live in a way that reflects faith in God, then ask God for wisdom. And God will give you the wisdom you need. That's his promise. And James says, if you pray that way, ask without doubting. Now, that's what verses six through eight are about. Believing that God is work to, working to build your faith, believing that God is using trials in your life to make you more and more solid and secure and strong and resilient, making you more and more like Jesus, he says, do not doubt that. That's what God's doing. And he will give you the wisdom you need when you ask him. Because again, when, when things are going good, we think, isn't God good? Oh boy, he's just so good. But when things are going bad, we wonder if what we have believed about God is even true. When things are going good, we sing about how Jesus loves me and how he died for me on the cross and we count our blessings, but when things are bad, suddenly all that disappears and we start to wonder and we start to worry and suddenly Jesus' death on the cross for me isn't enough. And suddenly, the fact that I'm going to heaven when I die isn't enough. That's what James means by doubting. That's what he means by being double-minded, going back and forth between what you say you believe about God, listen, and what the trial is tempting you to believe about God. Going back and forth with that. Rather than holding on to the fact that God is working to do something good for you as a result of this trial, and it's believing that God will answer that prayer for wisdom, believing that he is who he says he is, and he will do for you what he says he will do. It's believing those things and not doubting them. In other words, don't ask for wisdom and at the same time be playing he loves me, he loves me not in your mind. Doubting is, unwaver is, doubting is wavering faith. It's going back and forth like waves in the sea going back and forth between what we say we believe about God and the voices in our head that's telling us it's all a lie. And James is saying here, here it is, here you are in the middle of a trial, and when you go to God and ask him for wisdom, you're to go to God from this vantage point. God, I, I, I want you to know I still trust you. I still believe in you. God, this isn't a question. If you don't do this for me, then I won't do this for you. This isn't about what I'm gonna do if you fix this mess or what I'm not gonna do for you if you don't fix this mess. I'm not gonna argue with you. I'm not gonna bargain with you. I'm not gonna doubt you. God, I trust you, but I need some wisdom here. I need to see all this like you see it. I need to see how I am supposed to act, how I'm supposed to do the next thing to put my faith into action in the middle of this mess. And James says, God will honor that prayer. God will answer that prayer. He won't rebuke you like, why are you asking me about this? I've already told you what I'm doing. He won't ding you for asking for wisdom when you need help to understand. He wants you to have steadfast faith, not wavering faith. Now, let me put it this way. James is saying that believing prayer results in steadfast, steadfast faith. Believing prayer results in steadfast faith. You're picking up on what I'm struggling with here, aren't you? That, that's this, this, that, yeah, believe, that's gonna be in a Charlie Boyd out of context. Yeah, that's this, that, that, that. 
<laughs> oh, man. Believing prayer results in steadfast faith. <laughs> Telling God you want to see things the way he sees them. Telling God you want him to complete his work of refining your faith. Telling God that by his grace, by his spirit, you'll hold on to him no matter what. Asking God for the wisdom to know how to put your faith into action. Now, let's camp on that a minute, just this whole idea about believing prayer. Let's, let's come full circle. James began this whole passage by saying, consider it all joy. In other words, uh, when trials and troubles and life-altering loss come into your life, consider it all joy because you know that God is at work in that trial and he's working to refine your faith and to strengthen your faith. He's working to take what you say you believe about God and push it way down into the core of your being so that it becomes the foundation of your entire life. And he says, when you can't see that, ask God to help you see it. Ask him for wisdom and pray, believing prayer, not doubting prayer. Now here's where I'm going with all this. Your faith must be verbalized in order for joy to be realized. Your faith has to be verbalized before joy can be realized. In other words, you have to verbalize in prayer what you believe is true about God when, because of the trial, there's no visible evidence to support it, when your feelings don't feel it. You verbalize your faith. In faith, ask God for wisdom. By faith, affirm what you know is true about God. Let me say it one more time, because I didn't get it on the screen. In faith, ask God for wisdom. By faith, affirm what you know is true about God. You say, okay, okay, what's that look like? Glad you asked. Here are some examples of what you might call prayers of affirmation. Things you tell God, things you affirm that can provide you with an undercurrent of joy that can sustain you in the midst of pain and loss. You might pray something like this. Almighty God, I know you're in control of all things, and I know that you're even in control of this terrible thing that you've allowed to come into my life. And because I know you're in control of this, I will trust you to do what's good and right and best in your time and in your way, even if it doesn't feel right to me. That's verbalizing your faith in prayer. Father God, I know you're wise beyond anything I can imagine, and this terrible trial has come into my life it doesn't make sense to me, but I want you to know it doesn't have to for me to worship you and to stay close to you. I want you to know that I'm trusting in your wisdom even now. I trust that you know what you're doing and I want you to know that I'm okay with not understanding everything there is to know about what's going on. I'm okay with whatever outcome you choose. And sometimes you have to say that through tears. Heavenly Father, I know that you love me and you love all those I love more than I can even imagine. Je but Jesus' death on the cross is all the proof I will ever need that you love me. But this terrible trial doesn't feel loving to me. But I want you to know that, uh, that nothing I'm going through right now will ever cause me to question your love. How much you love me or how much you love that loved one of mine. Father, you are loving and good in all your ways, and you are kind 
in ways my mind can't comprehend, and I want you to know that I'm resting in that truth. Heavenly Father, I know you know the beginning and the end and everything in between and beyond life as we know it. And it hurts to face death. I'm, I'm afraid of facing death. I don't want to let go of this life. I don't want to lose this, this one I love. I don't want to let him go. But I want you to know I believe what you say in your word, and that is to live as Christ and to die as gain. I believe that, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So I trust you, because of my hope of heaven, I trust you to do what you've determined you will do. You see what I'm getting at? Do you see how all this ties with what James is saying about asking for wisdom? Do you see how all this ties with what James is saying that it is possible to have this undercurrent of joy underneath not happy feelings, but this undercurrent of solid calm and peace that God is in control, that God is wise, that God is love. You have to pray your faith. You put your faith into action by putting it into words. Affirm your faith, pray your faith. Ask God for wisdom when your faith is shaky in order to experience this undergirding sense of joy in the midst of the terrible trials that come into your life. And I know, I know. It's hard to understand. It's hard to understand that God loves us so much that he's willing to use hard and hurtful things to purge from, from us anything that distracts from confident trust in who he is and what he's already done for us on the cross. He loves us so much that he will allow those things to come into life, into our lives. But he does it because he knows that ultimately that's the path to joy. God works to replace doubt with confidence. He works to replace self-sufficiency with total dependence on him because he knows that that will bring about our highest joy. Now, let me tell you why I believe all this. You say, well, it's in the Bible. Isn't that enough? Yes, that's more than enough, but I'm gonna tell you why I believe it anyway. Because you see, when I'm going through a trial, I'm just like you. I'm just like everybody else. I, I'm, I'm, I, being a preacher doesn't mean I'm like super faith man or anything. I struggle with the same worries and the same fears and the same, oh, God, not me, not this, not now, that you do. I have the same, well, that's it. It's all over. It's, it's just never going to get any better. It's only going to get worse feelings that you have. I have those feelings. So let me tell you why I believe this. Because as a 40-year veteran, as a pastor, I've seen dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of people face all kinds of trials from health trials to money trials to broken marriages to failed businesses, prodigal kids, life-threatening illnesses. I've seen it and heard it all. And on those experiences, I have seen two kinds of people. I've seen people that trials and difficulties have destroyed their faith. I've seen men and women argue with God and bargain with God and promise God all kinds of stuff, more money, more commitment, if God would save them from the trial that's come into their life, and I've seen many of those kinds of people walk away from God and abandon their, their faith in God, abandon God, abandon the church, get mad at God, get mad at the church, get mad at me, all sorts of responses on that end of the spectrum. 
But then I've seen people who were able to see the trials that have come into their life as coming from the hand of God. And I listen to their stories and I watch them hold on to their faith in the, in the most traumatic circumstances. And time and time and time again, I see them go back to just a handful of basic truths that shape their life. Not, not simply up here, but it's shaping their whole life. That God is sovereign and wise and a good God and if he loved me enough to send his son to die for me, then I can never question his goodness. And they hold on to a few life-shaping truths about God like that, even when they don't understand why some terrible thing has come into their life. And they stand fast on the faith they have, and they say and they pray, God, I'm not questioning your goodness. And somehow, some way, they even smile through the pain and the hurt and the suffering. And they say, go ahead, God. Do in me whatever you need to do to make me more like Jesus. And time after time, watching men and women come through horrible circumstances like that, not only with their faith intact, but with their faith strengthened on the other side of the trial, they're even more committed to Christ. They're even more confident they're more calm, more settled, more joyful, and more at peace. And I have seen that so many times. I've seen it in, in some of you, many of you. And I've seen it so many times that when I read these words, I know they're true. I know they're true. And by God's grace, I personally know they're true. Because I've experienced the reality of that undercurrent of joy when I lost my mom to cancer at age 57, and when my dad died because of some crazy reaction to anesthesia for a minor back surgery. And I've seen it and experienced it in many, many other ways, especially in ministry when things aren't going the way you hope or when things seem, seem hopeless and when you think, I can't go on. I've seen it I've experienced it when I suffered from Epstein-Barr virus for 10 years and chronically fatigued and didn't think that I could get up to preach Sunday after Sunday. What I did is I just verbalized my faith and I held on to my faith through tears, rehearsed the kinds of prayers that I just said and, 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 and shared with you. And God brought me through. He brought me to a place that I'm, I'm, I'm still here today. And it's true, as much as I don't like it, and as much as I don't understand it, I know that God values steadfast, persevering faith so much that he will allow difficult things to come into the life of the people he loves to bring us to the place where we love him for who he really is and not for who we want him to be. Because that's our highest happiness. And that's our most joyful joy. So God says, this is my way. The reason I allow adversity to come into your life is not a mystery. It's something I want you to know about me and how I work in your life and why I allow tough times to come into your life. You see, God wants you 
and he wants me to prove that living with disappointment is not incompatible with joy. He wants you and me to prove before the eyes of a watching, unbelieving world, he wants us to prove that living with loss is not incompatible with joy. And Jesus proved it, didn't he? Because Hebrews tells us that he endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. So here's the challenge this week. Would you be willing to look at whatever you're facing right now? Would you look at those trials through a different lens? Look at them through God's perspective. Look at them through James' perspective. Instead of asking for a way out, and I'm not saying it's wrong to ask for a way out, but instead of asking, or to add to that prayer, like, God, if you choose not to get me out of this, God, would you grant me wisdom to see what's happening in my life the way you see it? And then, God, would you show me how to walk by faith in the midst of this trial? You pray, God, I, 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 I pray that at the end of the day, my faith would not collapse under the weight of this pressure, but that I'd be more, that I'd be stronger, that I'd be more committed, that I'd be more convinced, more faithful because of how you'll take me through all this. Oh, God, give me the wisdom that, I, that leads to an unwavering, stand firm kind of faith and a joy that passes all understanding. That's the way that you verbalize your faith and realize joy. Father God, thank you for the wisdom of, that we find in Scripture, but specifically, wow, in these eight verses, first eight verses of the book of James. And God, we struggle with all this because when we're in the midst of that trial, we're hurt and we're disappointed and we're disillusioned and, and we do, we do, we just want it all to go away. But would you give us, as James tells us, would you give us wisdom so that in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we'll be able to look at that, that trouble, that hardship, that difficulty. We'd be able to look at it the way you see it. And we'd be able to look at it and know that you're at work in us to refine us, to make us more like Jesus. And Holy Spirit, give us hearts to want that more than simply just getting out of the mess we're in. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.